something like, what can we pray for you for? And she wrote down, please make my daddy a better preacher. <laughs> so to that end, let me pray for you and you pray for me. And let's jump into the text. Father, we thank you so much for who you are, um, the ways that you continually show us your love, your mercy, your grace, your justice. And Father, also you show us all the ways that you are reforming and changing and shaping and molding us to look like you, to love like you, to lead like you. And so God, before we need any other sermon, before we need any other platform, Father, we need your spirit. And so God, I pray that your spirit would come and illuminate our hearts, our eyes, our understanding, so that we would move ourselves out the way, our predilections out of the way, and that we would only be looking at you, that you would be the unavoidable issue in every aspect of our lives. May that be so as we walk through your word today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So when I was, uh, first of all, it's super great. I probably, it's probably been six years since I was last here. I preached here before, maybe one or two times. I think the first time, I think uh, this church was at some kind of a rec center before. Maybe those who were here remember that. And, and then uh, got to come when you guys were here, and we've always had such a pleasant time, a beautiful time. Feels like family, it's, it's see some people that I remember. Uh, one of the things I was thinking through is, what, where do you go? You know, you, I'm kind of the person where if I get brought in to preach, I can almost kind of like do the drive-by, say crazy stuff and leave, and you guys can just blame the pastor for inviting me. Uh, I won't do that today. But, but what I will do is I wanted to talk about something that I think is a, um, it's a really common subject, it's a common topic. If you go to any bookstore, Christian bookstores, which sometimes can be pretty dangerous, but you go to a Christian bookstore, this topic I'm going to mention right now is one, there are just voluminous books written all the time, and you you go into blogs, and people are always talking about this particular topic, and that topic is that of of leadership. Leadership, right? What, What is real leadership, and there's whole ministries that have basically uh, been started based off of this understanding or idea of Christian leadership and biblical leadership, and we attach these these, uh, uh, titles to it to make it kind of, I always say we sprinkle some Jesus juice on it and go, here's our, here's our Christian version of leadership, right? And, and one of the things that, that I was thinking through is, how do we look to scripture, right, to inform how we look at leadership? How do we look, and here's why I ask this, because honestly, there are plenty places, there are plenty of places in scripture where you can find descriptive examples of leadership, but very few places in scripture where you see prescriptive examples or prescriptions for leadership. And so typically, you know, if you've been in church for any period of time, the place that people love to go to is Nehemiah. Nehemiah is a great example of leadership, and he built that wall, and here's, the, here, here's all the ways that he did it, and here's all the ways that they honored God, and, and, and these are the principles of leadership that it takes to accomplish that. Let's write a book. Let's start a doctrine. Here's how we look at leadership. But those are all just descriptions of what leadership kind of looked like, right? That was never the point of the text. The point of that text was to show what it means to obey God in the midst of really difficult circumstances. And what does it mean to obey God knowing that there may be real reprisal and retribution coming on the other end? But we miss the point because we want to just talk about this leadership piece as opposed to looking at maybe a few places where leadership is actually prescribed. And I'm going to take us to a place that that might surprise you because I think this is one of the only places in the Bible where leadership is specifically prescribed. 
really the only place where we don't have to derive a meaning from the thing, that God legitimately just says, here is what leadership looks like. Here is the leader that I require. Now, why is this important? As a church, we realize that if we, if we are in a, an environment where we believe we need to be flourishing wherever we are, flourishing leaders make for flourishing churches, and flourishing churches make for flourishing communities. So we can't say we love our community if we don't think through what it means to be flourishing believers, flourishing leaders, and flourishing churches. And so here's the text that I want us to go to. I would probably venture to say that few, if any of us, have ever truly looked to Proverbs 31 to look for leadership. Whenever we talk about Proverbs 31, who are we talking about? Somebody said Mother's Day? It does seem to come up on Mother's Day, doesn't it? Mother's Day. And the focus is always which group? Women. I I have yet to see one men's Bible study. Hey, we're going to get together, get up early in the morning, do some devotion. What are we studying? Proverbs 31. What? We don't do that, right? Because we've kind of been conditioned to believe that uh, the, the, the point of Proverbs 31 is ultimately to how to make a good Christian Stepford wife. That's going to go over probably everybody 25 and, and under, but that's okay. Google it. Because ultimately we think that there's this over-idealized list, and sadly, so often it's become a list by which we can shame women if they don't keep all of these things, which honestly, separate topic, but it's probably not just one woman being described here. But anyhow, hey, you're not getting up in the morning and making clothes out of lentils. Something's wrong with you. We, we do that, and we start shaming women in that. So that's, a, that's an aside in my little soapbox, but I think we do that. Here's why we jump to that so quickly, though. Because we, in, in many ways, when it comes to Proverbs 31, we start, it's like starting the movie 10 or 15 minutes in. How many of you have, have ever seen the movie Up? All right, it's been out for a long time, so spoiler alert, if you haven't seen it, that's on you. Um, <laughs> in the movie Up, you remember the, the opening 10 minutes, that 10-minute montage is crucial to understand the rest of the movie. Because that opening 10 minutes, if you recall, you see this man, Carl Sanderson, who is, uh, you see him uh, angry, you see him uh, kind of being a little bit cantankerous, but you're also learning in the beginning what his life was like before. He was married to his wife, Ellie, and she has some sort of debilitating illness that causes her to pass away, and you see all of the dreams that have been set aside or deferred because of that, and you see the, the plans and the joys that they had hoped for, and you see all of those things, and you see it all ripped away, and you see the, the compassion that it's eliciting from us. But if you just start at about 15 minutes in the movie, you're just going to think it's just some old cantankerous dude that doesn't like Boy Scouts because you skip past that opening montage. This is what we do with Proverbs 31. Nobody usually says, let's study the first nine verses of Proverbs 31. We start at verse 10, because we got to get to the women. But ultimately, this text, as we read, isn't even addressed to women. It's actually addressed to, 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 to a man. So let's do this. I'm going to read Proverbs 31, verses 1 through 9, and hopefully you'll see, as, we, as, as hopefully we'll see together, just how prescriptive these words of leadership are, what God is actually saying, and what he's calling all leaders to do. Let's start verse 1 of chapter 31 of Proverbs. The words of King Lemuel, an oracle that his mother taught him. What are you doing, my son? What are you doing, son of my womb? What are you doing, son of my vows? 
Do not give your strength to women, your ways to those who destroy kings. It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink, lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. Give strong drink to the one who is perishing and wine to those in bitter distress. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. This sound like Mother's Day to y'all? This is the word of the Lord. <laughs> Thanks be to God. So, so think, think about this. So quickly, when we think Proverbs 31, we jump right to the women uh, because we skip over that opening montage. And what do we end up doing? We end up putting the emphasis on the wrong syllable, don't we? Because we're missing the whole point here. The point here is, what does it mean for real leadership? Now, we can talk about 10 through the rest of the chapter and how that impacts what wisdom looks like in choosing a spouse and choosing a partner. But that's not the ultimate thrust of this chapter. The point here is, how do we get our eyes around, our our hearts around, what God requires of us in leading in community? So, what we know is, this is not this over-idealized checklist. We realize that there's something else here, that what a healthy, flourishing leader should look like, these leaders that that facilitate flourishing community uh, for those within their purview. I'm going to give you three kind of buckets to look at this text through. I think we should look at it uh, in terms of uh, prudence, sobriety, and advocacy. Real leaders are going to demonstrate prudence, sobriety, and advocacy. To make it really easy, because preachers love to do this, PSA, public service announcement. Think of it that way. Prudence, sobriety, and advocacy. So look at these first three verses. What are you doing, my son? What are you doing, son of my womb? What are you doing, son of my vows? Do not give your strength to women, your ways uh, to those who destroy king. Let me, let me say this first, uh, or in addition. Consider that arguably the only place where leadership is prescribed by God comes through the words of a woman. That's interesting. Consider the fact that of all the voices God could have used and all the words, all the lips he could have used to confer what he holds to be, these are the top priorities in leadership. He uses a woman. I just want you to sit with that in case you think that you need a Y chromosome to be a real leader. You don't. So now you've got uh, King Lemuel. We don't know much about King Lemuel. Scholars have a lot of theories about who he may have been. But whoever he is, this wisdom is coming from God through the words of his mother. And his mother starts to give the word of the Lord to him and says, uh, it starts with this idea that if you're going to be a wise leader, just a wise person, you need to be very wise and prudent about those, in, uh, those that you draw or invite into your inner circle, those with whom you establish very close, intimate relationships. And why would that have been important? When he says, when she says, don't give your strength to women, this isn't necessarily this um, kind of vituperative commentary on women. It's just that the only people who could have been leaders during that time were men. So, of course, you're going to talk to this man and say, be careful about the relationships that you have with women because only men could be kings. And guess what? Rival uh, countries and rival kingdoms would use your relationships in order to weaken you. So, ultimately, if you have a purpose, which if you're a king, you do, be very careful that your relationships don't draw you away from your purpose. Be very careful that your relationships don't draw you away from what God has called, objectively called you to do. In other words, be wise with whom you allow yourself to be vulnerable. 
because she's ultimately telling Lemuel, your strength, your vigor is meant to be spent on ensuring the flourishing of others. When you waste time with those that are only interested in enlarging themselves in the kingdom, they will ruin kings, they will ruin a leader. And so ultimately she starts with, be very prudent with your, with your relationships. Doesn't necessarily have to exclusively be romantic relationships, but be careful about the people that you have close relationships with. I think that uh, this next area is also really important because you look at verses 4 and 5 and it says, uh, it's not for kings, O Lemuel, it's not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. This is not meant to be this kind of teetotaler passage. This is not meant to be this ultimate kind of prohibitive, kind of prohibitive uh, text so that we can shame. Listen, I know it's Presbyterians here. Y'all don't got a problem with alcohol, so I'm not even, not even worried about that. If this is a Baptist church, we might have to hit that a little harder. I don't have to do that here. But nonetheless, be careful because that's not really what the point is. The point here is not how do we find the right text so that we can guilt people into, you know, not drinking alcohol. It's a little bit deeper than that. Ultimately, what's getting here is godly leaders— avoid abusing substances or any other comfort that can impair their judgment. A godly, wise person, no matter what it is you use, it's okay, we have things that bring comfort. It may not be a substance, it may not be alcohol, it may be Netflix, it may be uh, uh, relationships, who knows? Whatever those things are that help us have a respite or help us have any degree of uh, relaxing and decompressing, be very careful that those things don't pervert our ability to use wisdom with, uh, in the areas that we have real responsibility. So it's, it's not just the fact that being, sometimes people will say, well, I don't want to do these things because I don't want to be impaired. I, I don't want to feel like my judgment is off just because I don't like the way that feels, and it feels off. I should always be in control of what I'm doing, or, or I, I want to make sure that I don't appear unholy. This is not about that. It goes much deeper than that. The reason why these things are, the reason why it's bad that our judgment is impaired is not just for the sake of our judgment being impaired, the reason why it's bad for our judgment to be impaired is because somebody pays a price when our judgment is impaired. Somebody pays the price when we take our foot off of the gas. Somebody pays a price when we engage in something just for comfort and all of a sudden we stop doing what we ought to be doing. Your judgment is necessary because people's flourishing and their very lives sometimes are contingent upon it, especially so for a king like Lemuel. So a godly leader... Would, would avoid being drunk or inebriated in any way because of the consequences that may follow, lest they drink and forget what has been decreed, and what? Pervert the rights of the afflicted, pervert the rights of those who need it. I, I rarely hear people talk about this when we talk about this topic. You see, some people, especially in kind of Christian circles, we love, some folks love to take pride in what it is they've never done. You know what I mean? Like, you got some people, okay, this was maybe my vice, or this is sin struggle, and people just love to tell, well, you know, I've never taken a drink, or I've never done, well, that's cool, cool, but you got a problem with pride, so we need to talk about that, too. Because the issue is not about what I never have. It really is, I've not done this, but the why is the reason why we should be concerned. It's a lot of people who may have not done a thing and still are no closer to Jesus because of it. But if there's something that I, that I choose not to do because of the impacts or the consequences that are there, that's how a wise leader thinks. Sometimes the things that you don't do and you take pride in, that's because it's rooted in self. It's rooted in selfishness. It's not rooted in a desire to, to, to show and reflect the holistic image of God well. 
It's just I want to feel like I'm closer to God, and I want people to know just how holy I am. A godly leader avoids anything that will impair their judgment because they realize how important their judgment is for those that need it. In other words, a smart leader, a wise leader, recognizes their privilege and leverages it well for those who don't have it. So if I engage in certain comforts that stop me or, or in some way slow down my ability to leverage that privilege for those who don't have it, I'm not a wise leader anymore. And then verses 6 and 7 you see, actually six through nine, but you see uh, this, this movement now into advocacy as described by justice and mercy. Mercy and justice. It says, give strong drink to the one who is perishing and wine to those in bitter distress. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. Let's just stop right there. Now you might, it's easy if we just look at the text by itself and not do enough digging, we could be like, man, this seems kind of like, he's talking out, talking out of both sides of his mouth. He said, hey, don't, don't drink, don't drink, don't but give some people some drink. Wait, I thought you told me not to. What's happening? It's not a contradiction here. What ultimately Lemuel's mother is saying is that when you are a leader, you understand that a part of being a wise leader is to uh, work sometimes tirelessly to alleviate the suffering of those that are within your charge. You realize that a smart, a wise leader thinks about if they're suffering, sometimes they're suffering about which we can do nothing really. There are times where it's like nothing I can do about that particular thing. Like I don't have the, 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 the levers of power to impact what it is that's happening here. But what I can do is do some things to help alleviate the suffering that's there. I spent several years in the Air Force and I remember one of the things that you learn in the military when you are in... Even when you're in uh, theaters where there's battle that's going on, you, you learn a lot of the military history as well, and you know that there are times where people are just in, cr- in incredible suffering, and there's really nothing you can do for their suffering. They, sometimes they would give them something just to numb the pain because they know they're going to die no matter what. And what a wise leader would do is say, I, this is inevitable. This horrible thing is happening. There's really not much that I can do. And so I can at least try to mitigate some of that suffering on the way out. That's like the extreme sad part. And then there are times when you do have the power to start to alleviate those conditions and the things that are causing those issues of pain. And so a wise leader figures out how to do one or both. It's not enough to go, well, you know, I'm going to pray for you that you figure out how to alleviate your suffering. A wise leader says, how do I enter into? Now you realize this, this carries some other implications. Because in order for me to be, have a heart posture that wants to, to help alleviate or mitigate suffering, I've got to actually understand you well enough to know the nature of your suffering. I actually have to enter into some maybe uncomfortable places with people that may look very different from me or live very different from me. I might have to enter in because I can't actually be a part of alleviating or mitigating suffering if I don't understand it. And a wise leader does that. A wise leader says, I'm going to get down into wherever this is. And I don't want to say get down as if someone's lower. I'm just going to go to wherever people are to be able to understand what the nature of that suffering is. So that we don't get to just go, well, I just didn't know. Sometimes we just didn't know because we chose not to enter into the suffering. And nothing feels worse when you're going through suffering than people who are like, man, that seems really bad. I'll pray for you. But you don't do any work to actually enter in the suffering. Our country has a great history of that. 
we go through from really the founding of our country through the 1960s, we were a country where peop some people at least would admit, some things over here for these people, that's really bad. We'll pray for you on Sunday and then vote to disenfranchise you on a Tuesday. It's not entering into the suffering, is it? It's not wise leadership, is it? So what, when we talk about what it means to genuinely want to advocate and to alleviate suffering, this specific example is, hey, allow for these comforts for those who are perishing or in pain. Find ways. If there's unavoidable casualties, how do we enter into to say, all right, this right here is bad. I wish this was different, but here's some things we can do to try to hold you up in the, in, in the meantime. So, so, so that's mercy. The other part of advocacy is, is this idea, or the, the other part of this issue is the speaking up for, this idea of advocating for those who cannot advocate for themselves. Fight for and in place of those who are marginalized and disenfranchised. Speak up. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of those that are destitute or poor. Open your mouth and judge righteously. Defend, advocate for the poor and the needy. How many of you would have ever said before, maybe you knew this already, but say, hey, one huge sign in God's economy of what a good leader should look like is they want to genuinely advocate for the poor and the needy. We, I think everybody would say that's really important for like believers individually. Hey, we should care about that on some level. But how often do we go, man, if, if somebody's going to be a leader in whatever aspect, whether it's church world, a political world, whatever, if I'm trying to kind of take inventory of different people and where they are, and I'm trying to read the room and figure out kind of where they are on positions, how often do we start with, man, that, that area where God talks about what is required of a leader, I better hear people talking about this. I better see folks focusing on this. Because according to God, advocacy is something that he requires of a flourishing leader. Why? For the sake of a flourishing community. Requi it's not an option. It's not just something that if you get around to it, it is a requirement. It's one of the reasons why I love so much the verse that was read earlier today. One of my favorite verses, Micah 6.8. And the reason why I love that verse is because as Christians, we do a really good job of talking through the great commission and the great commandment. We get it. Great commandment. Love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, strength, and mind. and Love your neighbor as yourself. Amen. That's what we're here to do as a church. We're going to do that. And in the great commission, we're going to go out and make disciples of all nations, baptize them, and teach them about all the things that Jesus showed and lived and modeled. We're going to do all of that. It's awesome. That's what we're doing as a church. And then we fail to realize that all of those things, those very vital, important, great commandment, great commission, all emanate out of the great requirement in Micah 6.8. What do I require of you? That you do justice, that you love mercy, and that you walk humbly with your God. That's just all spiritual leadership. Those aren't options. Those are, those are mandates. Those are, and not in the sense of shaming us into it. If we have been radically loved and shown radically mer radical mercy, then ultimately you can't do anything else but, I want to do justice, I love mercy, and I'm going to walk humbly with God. So when we find ourselves not seeing leadership this way, we've got to ask ourselves the question, well, why? What other view of leadership am I holding to? And what color is that for me? I think most kings, rulers, elected officials like to present themselves as defending the cause of the people, right? And it was the same back then. And in reality, they would plead the cause of elites. Back then, military leaders, aristocrats, wealthy businessmen, etc. But here's the thing. Just like back then, the same is true now. 
Elites don't need rulers to speak on their behalf. They have their own power. They have their own lobbyists. They have their own lawyers. They have their own backers. But interestingly, whenever we come to any political season, doesn't matter what stripe, a political stripe they're a part of, which group does everyone always seem to want to appeal to? Which, which class is always the class that gets highlighted every time? The middle class. Now, when I was getting my MBA, there was no question that was always a huge uh, uh, indicator that any country, you can truly see how well their economy is doing for the middle class, and no one would argue that that is a great indicator. But in God's economy, that's not the prime indicator. In God's economy, that's not the prime uh, indicator. The primary indicator by which he evaluates leaders is not the middle class, it's the poor and the needy. The least of these, as Jesus called them, the poor, needy, speechless, those who have no voice in the corridors of power, those who cannot afford to speak on their behalf without the support of their ruler. So again, when we start talking about leadership, let's not look for the books that teach how to build a wall. Let's really look for those things that really show us what it means to advocate to genuinely have the heart of Jesus when we're engaging folks, what it means to care not just about our individual world, but corporately, what is happening here? How do I do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly? And here's the thing, this goes beyond just a list of principles, because yes, PSA, these are great uh, principles, these are great uh, things to hold to, and good mnemonic devices to remember things, but ultimately, we don't necessarily need to just follow a list of principles. These have all been embodied in a person, Everything we just talked about, we see laid out in the life of Jesus. Everything we just talked about, about what good, godly leadership looks like, has been made manifest in the life of Jesus. Think about what we talked about earlier, right? The self-control in our relationships, Jesus is the epitome of self-control. He's the epitome of what it means to not give in to certain comforts in order to care, care for self and, and thereby completely ignoring what God's called him to do. Jesus gets led into the wilderness, tempted of the devil. The test begins in earnest after Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. No food, no water. Jesus is hungry. Matthew 4, and in times of, of, of weakness, Satan comes and tempts Jesus, says, turn those stones into bread, and Jesus refuses what does he say? Because man does not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. In other words, there are some things I could do to alleviate my own stuff and to find comfort, but I've got a mission and I don't want to bypass that for my own selfish needs, even understandable needs. And what about mercy and advocacy? Jesus is the epitome of mercy. Remember what happened in Matthew 14 when Jesus heard about John. What did he do? He withdrew. Uh, after John the Baptist was beheaded, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. And the crowds found it out and followed him on foot from town to town. And when he stepped ashore, he saw a large crowd. And what does it say he had? He had compassion on them and healed their sick. He's in the midst of his mission, in the midst of doing all of these things, knowing that he and his followers are probably next after John the Baptist has just been beheaded. He's under duress. He's got all of these things that's happening, and yet he sees the needs of the people, many of which probably won't even be following him in about a month, but he sees the needs of the people and stops and has compassion, genuine compassion, stepping into wherever they are, the suffering uh, that, they're, that they are dealing with in that moment. In many ways, uh, it's, it's, it's very much like this, this picture of, of, of empathy, and I, I did, we often at our church describe empathy as the ability to relive some of your pain 
in order for you to relieve some of their pain. That's what it takes to be able to actually show that kind of compassion. Uh, do I know enough of it? I may not be able to do it perfectly. I will never feel everything that you feel, but, but maybe on some level I can understand you enough to be able to, to relive some of that so I can start using whatever it is the Lord's given me to help relieve some of that. That's what Jesus did. And then justice, Jesus is the epitome of justice. I think one of the best examples of this is, is the, the, the classic story of the woman in John 8 uh, in, having an adulterous affair. And the Pharisees, remember, were parading her in front of everyone so she could be shamed and punished publicly. By the way, you notice who's not there, that whatever man they found her with, because they just wanted to shame her. There's a whole issue of disproportionate justice towards women, but that's a different topic. But you've got that happening, and they're, they're looking forward to having her stoned in front of everybody. If they caught her in the affair, they had to catch her with somebody, right? but that person wasn't there. I wonder why. So, so now this woman is there, and Jesus sees that. Jesus knows men aren't punished at the, at the same rate as women for adultery, and if the woman committed adultery, it had to be with that second person, and, 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 and for whatever reason, they're not there. Jesus sees that. They had no influence. They had no voice. And many times, if women were in that situation, it normally wasn't just because it was fun to do. A lot of times, it's probably other issues that are happening. So, so Jesus knows the context there. This woman's only hope at that point is Jesus standing up for her, speaking for her, taking a hit from the powers that be, leveraging his privilege for someone without privilege and saying what needed to be said in order to turn the tide. Wrote something in the sand. People don't really know what it is. A lot of theories on what he might have said. Some people wonder if uh, he was writing down the names of other people that had been with her. That would have been spicy. <laughs> but whatever it was, then he says, he who was without sin cast the first stone. They dropped the rocks and walked away. You see, he, he didn't necessarily defend anything that occurred. We really don't know all of the things that, could, that went into that. But, but what he did do is he pointed out the hypocrisy and point, pointed out the, 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 the uh, uh, miscarriage of justice that was occurring right there. Empowered this woman in ways no one would ever do during that time. And then encouraged her to sin no more, go and sin no more. He pointed out their hypocrisy on their failure to apply the same no tolerance policy to themselves. This is what Jesus does with us. He takes us in our sinful state and he moves our hearts to be broken and repent and become advocates. And he becomes an advocate for us to the Father. So what do we think when we think about leadership? PSA, prudence and relationship, sobriety, in decision-making and uh, recreation and comfort, and then advocacy in relation to mercy and justice. This is the leader that God requires. So wherever we are, whatever our circles of influence, uh, influences are, what does that look like for us? Do we lead this way? If you're in, in business, I, that's one thing. We have things we've got to do, and there are tasks that are ahead, and so the bottom line and certain issues that we have to deal with, we can't overlook. But ultimately, wherever you are, these three things should still always be circling. Do we lead this way? I'm just going to put this out there. You can't truly know Jesus and ignore this. Whatever it is that you're doing, whatever it is we do, whatever good comes out of it, whatever fruit we can point to and go, look at the good that comes, you cannot claim to know Jesus and not think this way. We just can't. It doesn't work because he requires us to think this way. This is the leader that God requires. So it's not just, do we lead this way? Is this what you look for in leaders? 
Is this what we look for when we're looking for people that are going to be leading anything? I don't care what area it is. There are other huge performance indicators that need to be there. There are certain uh, abilities, skills, and talent that need to be there for whatever role. But do we think along these lines as well? These attributes are not as common in any of our leaders, sadly, and a lot of us, but they aren't common uh, across the board, and they really never have been. Our culture is more rooted in uh, sexual morality, decadence, and casual injustice. And so trying to get to a place where those things change, it only changes not because we shame ourselves into it, make ourselves feel so bad. It's how do I actually enter into God's heart and enter into the heart of Jesus so much so that my heart starts to get remade to look like that. This was mom's wisdom to Lemuel. This is mom's wisdom to us. It's God's wisdom to us. So may God make us careful and aware of what this type of leader looks like. May we look, may we look for and may we become these kinds of leaders that cease from, 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 from self-serving and, and serving our favorites and begin to genuinely love and serve others. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we know that you're good. We also know that you're just. We know that you're merciful. We know that you care deeply for us, so much so that you found us, you see us, you, you, you accept us exactly where we are, all in the ways that we don't live this way, that we don't love this way, that we don't lead this way. You did not wait. You don't wait for us to figure that out. You don't wait for us to get it perfect before you love us, before you uh, establish relationship with us. God, you loved us enough to meet us exactly where we were, but you love us too much to leave us that way. So God, any of these things, I pray for a holy discontent in our hearts. Any of these areas where we, we just kind of miss the boat, areas I know I miss the boat. God, I pray that in that, you would lovingly come in and hold us and give us your comfort and that you see us that we miss it and you empower us and encourage us to, to, to be more like you. May, may we know that we don't have to live in a place of genuine shame. May we know that in the times of obedience, the same God that preserved us in times of obedience, Father, redeems us in times of failure. And so, God, I pray that you would make us know that we can walk not necessarily with our heads hanging low, but we can be encouraged that there's something we get to live into, this idea of being a godly, Christ-centered, flourishing leader. Let this be done not for our own glory and our self-aggrandizement. Let this be done for your glory and yours alone. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.